How you doing, sir? All right. Uh, yeah, I'm doing very well. Uh, looking forward to discussing uh, s- superhero films, which uh, is a, a subject I know that you're a bit divided on. I am, I am, but um, uh, not specifically superheroes. We're talking tonight. It's going to be a little bit more focused than that. Um, we're going to be talking specifically about Marvel um, because uh, they've kind of crossed that line. There was a kind of a comic book uh, producer. Um, but they kind of made their own studio, and with the uh, kind of phase one, phase two shenanigans they've been pulling in the last uh, few years, they've kind of, uh, you know, kind of marked themselves out of doing something quite ambitious. Perhaps not ambitious artistically, um, certainly ambitious commercially, um, and it seems to be reaping dividends. And the reason we're talking about Marvel is uh, there's quite a few stories about them in the news, but kind of currently uh, there's a film out called Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, and those uh, listeners who remember, we talked about it uh, in our preview episode, and we said that it has the potential uh, to be a John Carter-style bomb, uh, and it also has the potential to be pretty interesting. But if it's interesting, then it's proof that for Marvel, if that works, then anything can work. Um, we both saw the film yesterday uh, on separate continents. Um, what did What did we think of it? Well, you tell me what you think of it, and I'll tell you what I thought of it. Uh, I, I really, really enjoyed it. I was, like that, like you say, I wasn't entirely sure how it was going to work going in, because it seemed like such an odd, unusual concept, and obviously is quite outside the uh, the realm of what Marvel usually do, because it's not really a superhero movie, so much as it is like a space opera in the Star Wars kind of mould. Uh, but uh, I, I really, really enjoyed it. I, I didn't think it was as strong as some of their their other films. I didn't think it was kind of hits the heights of something like The Avengers or Iron Man three. But it was uh, it was really enjoyable. It had a great cast, and apart from the first half an hour in which I kind of was thinking I really want to be enjoying this a little more than I am, uh, and as I was kind of waiting for it to get the various members of the team together. Uh, I had a I had a really good time with it. Mm. Um, I felt the same way. Um, and it is a hugely enjoyable uh, romp. Um, uh, but the first third is very kind of unwieldy. There's a lot of gobbledygook names. A lot of it kind of is very difficult to take seriously. Um, uh, and given that the film kind of posits itself as, you know, mostly a comedy. Um, it, it kind of jars a little bit and it doesn't quite get off to it. It's, it's kind of once they're in the prison, mm. it kind of all starts to come together. Yeah, that's when it really kind of started to work for me because, like you say, in the first half, there's a lot of jargon and there's lots of planet names and names of races, you know, Xandar and Kree and things like that. These words that are, you know, kind of, proper space opera kind of names the sort of things that you think god any non-geeks in the audience are going to sort of be chewing their hand at this point you know because it's all just people talking about fictional space politics and stuff like that but once they got to the prison and the film kind of slowed down not 
completely, but you know, just long enough that you kind of got to, to kind of hang out with the characters and see how they related to each other. And once uh, Dave Batista showed up and was surprisingly funny as uh, a completely monstrous psychopath, uh, I felt that the film kind of, you know, found its footing a little more. Whereas in the first third, it was like trying to balance being funny with introducing all of these different characters and setting up this kind of intergalactic conflict all happening in the background, which was kind of a bit uh, awkward at uh, trying to achieve. Yeah, I mean, the reason it's quite awkward is it's a very tough gig. Mm. Uh, you've got lots of people, lots of factions all wanting one thing that's been collected by one person who works for someone else, who wants to sell it to someone else. Uh, someone tries to catch him, but they they happen to take the form of a walking tree and a raccoon. Uh, a green lady's after him. Uh, there's lots going on. Plus, at the same time, it's got this layer of kind of, like you say, space opera uh, gibberish. Um, doesn't really help it along. But once it does find its footing and once it does get into it, uh, it seems remarkably easy. That chemistry uh, with the characters and James Gunn has a kind of a way of selling that kind of tongue-in-cheek action, doesn't he, that he's done with uh, Slither and uh, uh, Super, things like that. Yeah, I think that his his real knack is just you know being able to be fairly kind of straightforward in terms of engaging with the material like he's not mocking the material but being able to find humor in it and i think that that is a, a delicate balance where you're kind of playing the ridiculousness for gags but not you know out, outright ridiculing it which is why i think the film works so well in general and also you know in stuff like slither where he's kind of playing with the the form of a monster movie but also clearly really really loves the stuff he's kind of making fun of and i think he has a real affection in the film for the characters and enjoys having them kind of play off of each other it reminds me very much of the way that lord and miller approach their 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 stuff they kind of uh, take on a subject that should be you know a bit shit mm. um and, and make it work somehow through kind of sheer force of talent yeah definitely and i think it helps that it has this it has such a, a big kind of imaginative world around it that they are able he uh, james gunn was able to kind of pack the frame with just so many details so even if you know some of the comedy felt a little bit strained in the first first third there was so much sort of visual information and so many new aliens and so many kind of uh, strange foreign worlds to kind of discover that uh, and kind of concepts to see realized that even when the human humor kind of uh, failed it worked as just kind of visual spectacle mm. and the action's all pretty good um uh kind of especially the prison escape mm. um which does like we were saying about mr gunn he does know how to make a gag uh, it's a very funny prison escape but it does hinge around a joke around uh, a prosthetic leg which is hilarious yeah, and there's a he's he's very good at using editing to kind of undercut that because the bit with the the wooden the prosthetic leg, a it has a great punchline to that whole kind of running gag about it, but also there's just a great moment where Rocket Raccoon has been given a gun and he's kind of shooting at all these automated uh, gun turrets and he's kind of really kind of letting loose and then it immediately cuts to Pr Chris Pratt talking to a guy and he says, "You need my what?" <laughs> and it's just this, it's just this very kind of quiet scene in amidst all of this insane madness, and I think stuff like that, which undercuts and heightens the the fun of it, is uh, was is a really 
cool and interesting thing and one of the little idiosyncrasies that he brought to the film. Um, one of the things that we highlighted in our preview that might make it a hard sell is two of the characters being entirely CGI creations. One, Groot, a giant tree, uh, who only says, I am Groot, repeatedly, with varying degrees of uh, kind of inflection for emphasis. Um, and the other, a kind of a wisecracking raccoon. Um, given that they could have been seen as, as risky, um, they both kind of work pretty well. Yeah, I felt that Groot worked better than Rocket just because I found like Bradley Cooper's performance as Rocket weirdly distracting because he really did sound like someone putting on a voice rather than inhabiting a character in the way that like really great voice actors do. Mm. But and and like in the early going, I felt that that they were trying to make him the comic relief character and it didn't quite work. Uh, but as the as it went on, the film I think got a little more confident in him and using him to play more serious moments, which ended up being funny because you know as emotional as the character can possibly get, it's still a talking raccoon. So there's kind of still some ridiculousness in it, even when he's kind of having a, a moral crisis. Mm. Um, it reminded me of Howard the Duck, mm. the the attitude of the character. Um, um, perhaps what Howard the Duck is in the comic rather than what he is in the film. Um, but, um, yeah, I have to say that uh, I didn't kind of realise it was Bradley Cooper. I mean, I knew it was because I'd read it was going to be him, but when it, it didn't sound like him, it sounded like him doing an impression of someone from Bugsy Malone. <laughs> Which is, you know, good in its own way, I suppose. Mm, yeah, I, I think that... The... It's not a bad performance, but I think it may I, either something in the performance or the writing in the early going made it a bit distracting for me. Uh, mm. And I don't know. Was if, it the fact that he was a raccoon? Maybe it was that. It may have been the fact that he was a talking raccoon. But you know, I think I, th- I found Groot more kind of believable as a character. But I, I, maybe that's just because he's so limited and he doesn't have so much kind of heavy lifting to do he just has to say the same three words in different ways to convey different meaning and Mm. i think the rocket just had a lot of emphasis placed on him possibly because you know they were having to they were contending with the fact that they have to sell this idea that this talking raccoon is a real character that people have to kind of get on board with we're gonna talk a bit kind of spoilery now um so if you haven't seen the film yet uh, tune away for the next couple of minutes. Uh, I think you know, Ed will probably stick a, a spoiler time start, time end in the description of this episode, won't you, Ed? Uh, yes, I will um, do. Because uh, we're going to discuss the post-credit sting, um, which uh, if, uh, though, for those of you who have seen it, you'll know that uh, the collector, uh, played by Benicio del Toro, who appears to be playing Jim Jarmusch uh, <laughs> with heavy eyeliner, um, in that and uh, gobbling up all the scenery he can um, whilst doing so um, is left to, in a tattered kind of uh, warehouse all these bits and bobs have kind of gone awry uh, and he is mocked by one of his, his items he's collected and it's Howard the Duck voiced by Seth Green um, now if that's a gag then that's pretty funny <laughs> anyone who's seen Howard the Duck will know it is one of the worst things that's ever happened Full stop. Um, it's yeah, it's just kind of abhorrent. Um, but if it's uh, 
a kind of a nod to where they're going to go with over the Guardians of the Galaxy because I mean I'm not a massive comic book nerd but I think that Howard the Duck has got some crossover into Guardians of the Galaxy is he not? Uh, I'm not sure but I know that Howard the Duck as a character is you know, a Marvel property and even if he's not in Guardians of the Galaxy I'm fairly sure they can find a way to fit him into the film if they wanted to. Mm. So that's a thing so if they're saying that is we're going to do a Howard the Duck film I don't think I'm on board with that. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I don't think it's to be taken seriously. I think it's on a par with the, the shawarma scene in uh, at the in the Avengers where it's just kind of a funny little button to end the film on rather mm. than something that has any kind of narrative significance. Uh, because, yeah, I think it'd be very surprising if they went in that way uh, because, obviously, Howard the Duck as a character, uh, you know, for most film audiences only really know him as the lead character in a horrendous flop from the 80s. So I don't think that there's a huge kind of demand for him to be made into a film. Uh, but that said, like, the, the people who would be into the Howard the Duck comics will know that it's an idea that, if you did pull it off, would be pretty cool. Hmm. Um, and is this Marvel saying, uh, yeah, we've shown you we can pull off a... I'm not going to say pull off a raccoon, because that's going to sound really suspect. You can pull off a film that features a talking raccoon in a tree that's kind of weird and all this shit. Now let's see what we can do. Maybe, I guess, uh, the the success of the film, and you know, at the time we we're recording, it's open to roughly $94 million in the US, which is more than pretty much anyone was expecting. Uh, no one was expecting a film with no stars based on a comic hardly anyone has heard of to mm. make nearly as much as the second Captain America film did. Yeah. Uh, and you know it's, it lo- it's looking like it's going to be you know based on the response it could you know end up being a bigger hit in the US than the fourth Transformers movie which again I don't think anyone was expecting at the start of the summer or the year or when the film was announced um, or even last week you know it seems like you know if anything is going to give Marvel the confidence that they can take any of their characters and turn them into you know the basis for a successful franchise film Guardians of the Galaxy seems like the one but mm. I, I still am not entirely sure that they would want to kind of make a film based on How to Duck unless you know this is a kind of a clue that they might decide to work him in as a minor character in something else to kind mm. of test the waters uh, but if, even if it doesn't result in anything I think it's still quite a funny gag to end the film on both in and of itself and also as you know, kind of a playful nod to, you know, the silliness of post-credits uh, scenes in general. Um, and but Seth Green, though, odd choice. I'd say that that role's tailor-made for Nathan Fillion. <laughs> Apparently, he was in the film, but I didn't recognise him. Uh, he plays the big blue alien that uh, Groot sticks his fingers up the nose of. Oh, okay. Um, that's that's. Uh, I didn't know either, but I just found that out. I knew I knew he was single Google. Yeah, I think he I knew he was in it and when I looked up his character on IMDb it was just like scary alien and I thought that doesn't narrow it down. There's a few in the film that are a bit scary. Yeah. Um Chris Finch from The Office is in it. I don't know if you spotted him. Oh, is he the like really weaselly one that Dave Batista's like No, he's a pilot. He's uh he's the pilot of um Michael Rooker's ship. Oh, he did look familiar. Yeah, I recognised uh, one of the guys from Alvida Saint Pet as the the uh, the broker. 
Yes. Yeah. Um, uh, it's all, all the hits. All the... Uh, <laughs> all the big names. Wanna, yeah. <laughs> you said this film had no stars, Ed. And, uh, you know, how wrong you are. Um, the biggest star so, of 1982. Yeah, exactly. Uh, spoilers end now. Um, so, yeah, we're back in the room. Um, the Guardians of the Galaxy, in terms of its place in the Marvel Universe, it's all phase one, phase two, shebang. Um, is it a sign that Marvel are prepared to go weirder or take more risks? You'd hope so, but it's kind of... I kind of felt like Guardians of the Galaxy wasn't that weird in terms of what Marvel had been doing, because it's still kind of uh, hewed to their formula. You know, it had a formulative trauma for a formative trauma for the main character. It had kind of a point halfway through where they seemed to lose everything. It had kind of a, f- a, a sequence of seeming sacrifice from the the several of the major characters and it ended with a big fight over a massive city and mm-hmm. you know so and, you know, and that's something that's become kind of a staple of uh, a lot of their blockbusters and i think that uh, it, the kind of the perceived weirdness of it didn't really kind of come through in the final product it was still really fun and i think it had enough kind of personal idiosyncrasies to be interesting but largely it kind of felt like it was it was James Gunn playing within the boundaries of a very kind of rigidly defined formula um mm. but hopefully hopefully they'll look at the success of the film and think and, and not think oh you know we just need to keep doing things the same way but we need to give people a chance to be more expressive which uh you know maybe is giving them pause considering the that they've parted ways with Edgar Wright, who seemed to be promising to do exactly that with uh, Ant-Man. Yeah, although James Gunn does get time to stamp his his mark on the film, um, he is playing within, you know, uh, fairly tight boundaries. Um, allegedly, that's why Edgar Wright departed the Ant-Man film. The Ant-Man film actually starts shooting um, this week, I think, with... Uh, who's the replacement director? Uh... uh, uh... Peyton Reed, I believe his name is, did uh, yeah. uh, da- uh, Down With Love. Right, okay. Um, uh, you get the impression, well, that's allegedly why Edgar Wright walked away from the project, that um, there was not quite the wiggle room in it that he wanted, um, which is a shame, because uh, they it seemed to be uh, Ant-Man as a character and as a property, as an idea, is something that needs a kind of a, a fairly unique voice to, to bring to life. Yeah, and it also seemed to fit in with the, you know, what what seemed to be the direction they were going with uh, with Guardians of the Galaxy and to an extent with Captain America 2 because Captain America 2, they kind of add in sort of touches of kind of conspiracy theory movies uh, into it and obviously uh, Guardians of the Galaxy is, you know, a pretty much full-blown space opera. The idea of making a Marvel movie which is kind of a comedy and a heist film seemed like they would be trying to kind of push against the boundaries that they've established. And while it seems that that's still what the film will end up being, I think it seems like, the you know, based on reports of why Edgar Wright left, that they were trying to bring it, you know, too closely to, you know, what's already occurred with the series. And that that was, uh, rather than allowing it, allowing it to stand on its own or be, you know, at least reasonably 
separate from all of the Avengers stuff. Um, do you think that uh, we're going to see much of uh, remnants of Edgar Wright's work left in Ant Man, or do you think it's you know a completely clean slate? It has gone into production pretty quickly. Yeah, I can't. I imagine they probably would have to end up using a lot of his storyboards and stuff because it sounds like it'd be quite an effects-heavy film. Mm. And that's not the sort of stuff that you can just start from scratch after years and years of development. So uh, probably a lot of it is that is probably still going to be him, you know, at a basic level. But, you know, they might be working from a different script, the one that him and Joe Cornish wrote, or they might be... Uh, they might be, you know, it might be different in when it comes to the editing because I can't imagine that they'll recreate the the kind of frenetic and layered editing that he used in his previous films. Um, it's unfortunate because that would have been a really good film to see. I think if the cast he'd assembled, he had Paul Rudd and uh, Michael Douglas. Were anyone else in it that I can remember? I think uh, Corey, oh, Corey Stoll's in it and uh, Evangeline uh, Lilly from Lost who are both... Uh, actors I quite like and I think they could have you know been worked really well with uh, Wright who can get really good performances out of people uh, in terms of uh, you know comedic turns and uh, matching his very kind of specific pop culture adult uh, worldview. Mm. Yeah it's a shame it would have been would have been good. Uh, what else have Marvel got on the slate coming up after is it the Avengers 2 next? Avengers Age of Ultron is the next one. And then, you know, obviously I think there's a Thor sequel and uh, Captain America 3 and Guardians of the Galaxy 2 was announced and they're saying they're, they're keeping James Gunn back. So hopefully he will, uh, you know, be given even more leeway the second time round. And obviously you'll be freed from the need to actually explain things the next time round. You can just kind of get on with it. Um, but they've got, um, I think they've got something like six unannounced films that they've scheduled but it's not uh it's not clear what those films will be uh so mm. either they've got some curveballs like stuff like doctors like uh yeah like doctor strange uh you know is one that's been uh, mooted for quite a while and it's got scott derrickson who did uh sinister so there's talk that, that might be more of a horror movie and stuff so i think they they've got a a lot of potential, and obviously they have a lot of characters that they can use, uh, but it will be uh, interesting to see what they actually end up using. Isn't it weird to be in this position that we can talk about Marvel as a uh, as an institution, I guess you can probably call it, as a, as a body that can have a slate so ridiculously big, and, and these films are uh, not cheap to make. No, like uh, Guardians of the Galaxy was nearly two hundred million, which seems to be the average price for most of their films these days. But that's insane for like the first film in, you know, essentially the first film in a series. Although really, it's like the tenth film um, at this point if you're considering all of the uh, all of the MCU films to be one continuous series. Mm. And I think it at this point they have reached the same sort of uh, level that, you know, Pixar had a few years ago and still does to an extent where people see that they're involved and kind of they have a, they've developed a level of trust as people who make solid, you know, generally pretty good, generally pretty fun uh, blockbusters. And, mm. you know, I think that that 
level of trust is is reinforced by the fact that their films have a sort of a basic quality and uh, competency to them that uh you know your man of steels uh, don't really have yeah it's important to note here as well that these films weirdly even though they are marvel properties don't include the X-Men films or this, the amazing Spider-Man films or the original Spider-Man films um, because through kind of weird quirks of licensing, even though they're all Marvel properties, they're made by different studios. Yeah, I think in the 90s when uh, when Marvel obviously didn't have a studio and when they were on the verge of uh, bankruptcy, I think a lot of their licenses got sold to various different studios who obviously used them to make very successful films and you know they managed to get some of the rights back either because they lapped you know the rights to make an iron man film lapsed and you know make a captain america film kind of fell through and they were able to make their own films but it's got to be a little frustrating for them that they can't use their them sort of their biggest stars in you know characters like spider-man and doubly uh, frustrating considering that uh, Sony, who make the Spider-Man films, have run that character into the ground over the last two films. Mm, they won't stop either. No, they won't stop. And they'll do a Sinister Six film, which people probably won't really care for that much. And then they'll reboot the characters again. Mm. And people will still keep going to it, which is depressing. Um, where do you stand on on the kind of... I think we've probably, for, for ease, the Marvel Expanded Universe, is it? Is that what it's called? Uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe. All right, the MCU. Um, where do you stand on that? Have you got a favourite? Have you got uh, things you don't particularly dig? Uh, um, are there kind of ones that you uh, would like to see incorporated more? Uh, I think the the first Avengers is probably the one I enjoy the most because, mm. uh, it, you know, it has all of these characters who are fairly good in all their own individual films sparking off of each other really nicely in it. You know, it makes better use of Captain America than the first Captain America film did, and I did like the first Captain America quite a bit. Um, I think that's the one that gets closest to kind of realising what the, they want the the MCU to be, which is this kind of shared world where all these characters can kind of play around together and, you know, share in each other's stories. Uh, and I think that I think something like I think probably the one I like the least is probably the second Thor film, not because it was particularly bad, but because it kind of felt like nothing and it didn't really have an interesting story to tell, and it just felt like mm. they realized they had to make a second Thor film and they needed to put more Loki in it, and it didn't really feel like it had any reason to exist beyond the fact the first one was fairly successful mm. i I don't really dig the four films mm. um. Like yourself, I like the Avengers. Um, uh, that was a lot of fun. And I like the Iron Man films. But two was a bit... I can't really remember what happens in two. Um, and one seems to be on film four kind of like daily. <laughs> um, so I've seen that quite a lot. Uh, just by virtue of it. If it's on, I'll watch it. Um, but I really like the Captain America film, even though it, for the reasons we talked about um, why Guardians of the Galaxy is good because it's got a, a director with a unique voice who can play, perhaps play around a little bit within the confines of the overall formula. Um, but Captain America doesn't have that. I mean, he's directed by Joe Johnson, who's a kind of a workman-like director who kind of does things like Jurassic Park 3. and uh, I think he did Jumanji. Uh, don't quote me on that. Uh, yeah, um, I think that's he, right. 
but yeah, he's he's a kind of workaday guy. But somehow Captain America is really well. I just love the ending. Mm. Just like a really the most melancholy ending of any <laughs> of any major blockbuster where you know our hero is you know so or finally after all the stuff he's doing realizes where he is in time and realizes that everyone he knows is dead. The end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that one. That one has a kind of a sweetness at its heart, mainly embodied by Chris Evans, who is, you know, really, uh, is really good at selling that kind of schoolboy quality, uh, of uh, that uh, Boy Scout quality of Captain America in a way that doesn't feel kind of cheesy or cutesy. Mm. Uh, he just uh, plays him as like just a genuinely good guy who, you know, in his own words, doesn't like bullies, which I think is a is a kind of a, a very nice and sweet uh motivation for the character that you know carries him through that film and you know allows him to be a true hero and then kind of takes it all away from him uh which is a kind of clean character arc that i think a lot of the other marvel films sometimes lack because they feel like they're just building towards something else some part of a bigger story and in terms of you know what i'd like to see more happening with the marvel films i think not necessarily kind of specific characters, but I'd like them to kind of scale back a little bit on the serialization and the idea that they're all kind of constituent parts of bigger stories. I think what the Iron Man films do really well, apart from the second one, which really kind of does the, oh, you know, it's all, you know, a rich tapestry part of all this bigger storyline is that they are fairly self-contained and they're not, they don't seem super interested in kind of setting up continuity. Whereas, the second four film and uh, and the the Incredible Hulk to an extent, they but they really felt like they were just setting up all this stuff that was going to pay off later, mm. and that's something that I don't mind in TV, but in film, you know, if you're going to spend sort of two hours in a cinema and buy a ticket, you want to have had a complete story, even if that is part of a bigger story as well. Um, yeah. Um, in terms of what I'd like to see more. It's one that I'm really not. I'm really surprised that they haven't kind of included up to this point. Is um, is Batman? <laughs> um, because the Batman films are really successful. Just chuck Batman in there. What's what's the problem? I think they're getting to that once they've done Batman versus Superman. Right, and then there's all comes... Batman versus Superman versus Kramer versus Kramer. Yeah, versus the Avengers. Twenty eighteen. Should I watch it? <laughs> um yeah um yeah it's it's weird to think that uh this could all end if the comic book movie bubble bursts yeah i kind of think even if it did burst that marvel would probably be reasonably okay because they're their own kind of self-sustaining ecosystem at this point you know Mm. in kind of the same way that uh pixar managed to you know keep going even after uh, people stopped going to every CGI animated film, regardless of quality, which is kind of what it was when they were a novelty. Um, You know, there were floods of films like Shark Tale and Robots, you know, where people would just go and see something because they think, oh, you know, computer animated, that's pretty cool and shiny. And then at a certain point, people thought, no, I'm not going to go and watch... Uh, any any of these films because they look terrible they would you know go and see Pixar films and the occasional DreamWorks film uh, and I kind of feel that Marvel now has that level of trust and as long as they don't start making completely shitty 
incompetent films, they'll probably be able to keep going for quite a while. Whereas, mm. you know, the Spider-Man films seem to be dying. Um, no one seems that enthusiastic about, well, not no one, but, you know, I think our general audiences are, you know, deeply cynical about, you know, Batman versus Superman. And, you know, there aren't really that many non-Marvel characters that look like they could anchor a film. Whereas, you know, Marvel, just because they keep on it and they, they kind of follow through with the films they want to make and they, you know, make them reasonably well, they seem fairly uh, inoculated against failure at this point. Yeah, I kind of realised it as I said it when I was saying, you know, will the bubble burst? But, like, there is no bubble because people who, I'd say a big big chunk of the audience who watch these films um, don't even probably know that they're comic books or that Marvel make comic books. I mean, we we know from uh, when it's been tried that the the comic book dollar, the geek dollar, is very weak. Mm. Uh, they couldn't open Scott Pilgrim, uh, and there's you know, other examples where that's gone wrong. The the reason the Marvel films succeed is that they have created their own thing. That I think if I would have kind of exit polled people on the way out of my screening of Guardians of the Galaxy yesterday, and asked them, "Have you ever read Guardians of the Galaxy comic book?" Uh, I bet you there'd be like a vast majority of people didn't know it's a comic book, and the vast majority of people would be confused as to why I was asking them about the comic book. <laughs> I think that 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 Marvel is just a thing now; they just see it as, as a logo that you do at the start of any film, like you know the Warner Brothers logo or the Fox logo, or whatever. I don't think they get it. Yeah, exactly. I think that it is a an entity unto itself, kind of separate from the source material, and obviously the source material has kind of a, a long history and, you know, it can appeal to the geek dollar, but where I think a lot of, in some ways they've kind of taken the tack that, uh, you know, Tim Burton did when he made Batman in 1989, which is, you know, it's good to kind of have a source material to draw on and an iconography to draw on. But at the end of the day, people are going to want to see a film that's enjoyable and that, you know, features characters that they're interested in. And, you know, whether or not it's based on a comic or a book or a play, that ultimately matters relatively little, except in cases like, uh, you know, like The Fault in Our Stars, where it's a hugely successful book and people want to see the book realised. I think in cases like, you know, Iron Man and the various, you know, Avengers, which have, you know, 50 or 60 years of comic book history, most people aren't don't have a kind of a, a defined vision of the character in their heads of what Iron Man should be. They just have a kind of general sense. And I think for a lot of people who don't read the comics, Iron Man is Robert Downey Jr. And that's the version of the character that they know is not kind of tied to a specific image. Mm. Yeah. I think the fault in their stars would be an excellent next addition to the, the MCU. <laughs> uh, it kind of grinds that. I mean, they did, they did bring a cancer vibe two uh, Guardians of the Galaxy perhaps that all kind of cross over. Yeah, in a very startling opening scene which I wasn't uh, expecting. Yeah, although immediately I saw uh, the actor whose name I forget playing um, uh, young Star-Lord's grandfather mm. and I was like, is that James Khan? Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, he, he's played, is his name Greg Henry? That's it, isn't yeah. it? He's in Slither, he's the, the, the brilliant mayor of the, the town in Slither. And um, uh, yeah, as he's got older, and I think he's he's aged up 
in that film. He looks just like James Caan. <laughs> and I was nudging my mate saying, it's James Caan. He was just like, it's not. <laughs> like, seriously, it is. And he's like, shit, I want to watch this film. It's a big um, get. Yeah, yeah. Well, not really. James Caan was in Mickey Blue Eyes. So, <laughs> uh, uh, so what we've uh, saying is Marvel do a good job of something they do uh, pretty well. They've kind of slipped into a groove. Um, they're trying to be a bit more interesting. We're not too interested. And we're heading towards a future where all films are Marvel. And that's pretty much what you're saying, isn't it? Yeah, I think we're building to the point where uh, Patton Oswald's speech from Parks and Recreation explaining how Star Wars and Marvel can eventually happen and have a crossover film. I think we're, we're only a few years away from that at this point. Uh, yeah, okay, cool. Uh, well, thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, if you enjoyed our episode, this particular bit of waffle, you can subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you like what you hear, uh, leave us a little review and even better rate the show uh, we've got a little facebook page and we're on twitter as well follow us in those various places um and until next time it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me and goodbye from me we pan outside of the control uh, window to a nearby asteroid where we see and please allow me to finish this because it's going to seem like a bit of a jump we see thanos who was the villain teased at the end of the first Avengers movie. Now, Thanos, as you know, owns the Infinity Gauntlet, which has the Time Gem, the Mind Gem, the Power Gem, the Space Gem, and the Reality Gem. If he holds the Reality Gem, that means he can jump from different realities. This will be our link to the Marvel Universe from the Star Wars Universe. Uh, We then cut to Earth, uh, Tony Stark, uh, realizes okay, uh, that okay. there is. She, Tony Stark realizes this is that, that there I is. A, I know Tony who that Stark. Is. I know who that is. This is the first person I've known.